Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is June the 19th, 2014, and this is episode 1371 of the Survival Podcast. And I know what you're thinking, it's Thursday, it's time for an interview. We always do interviews on Wednesdays and Thursdays. Well, my interview yesterday, um, what's the word for it? Uh, spaced out, yep, spaced out, and uh, just wasn't there when I tried to get a hold of them, so you got just me today, I had to come up with a show for you, and I've been going back and forth trying to help out Brent in uh, Prince Edward Island with some soil amendments, and one of the things I brought up was comfrey, and he seems to have a lot of questions about comfrey, so Brent, this show is just for you, now it's really for everybody but it did kind of get inspired by some recent comments to Brent and Brent having some questions about Comfrey. Figured I will take care of this for everyone at once. And it's a show we really should have done a long time ago because I call Comfrey a miracle plant. And by the time I'm done today, you probably will too. You might have a new understanding of the, uh, well, the slander campaign against Comfrey as well. Before I do that, though, let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day, number one today, BulkAmmo.com. We have these things called ammo shortages. That's where, like, the the gun grabbers start talking about new legislation or some kind of a shooting happens, and they talk about new legislation, and everybody buys ammo, or there's some blip in the supply chain, and all of a sudden ammo prices go through the roof. The best way to not be affected by that is to have a good supply of ammunition on hand. Everything's reasonably affordable right now. Some people are predicting a collapse in ammo prices. I'm telling you... Don't bet on that. Um, it's still hard to get 22 long rifles. I get them where and as I can at reasonable prices, but uh, everything else is pretty reasonable. Might be a good time to stock up. If you want to do that, check out BulkAmmo.com, which shipping so fast, it'll snap your head around how quick that ammo will be at your doorstep. Check them out today, BulkAmmo.com. Next up today, uh, Safe Castle Royal, the original survival podcast sponsor. Safe Castle's been with us now for over five years. Amazing group, amazing operation, great people, great selection, and they give away their discount uh, membership program to all members of our member support brigade. That's a $49 value, making your first year of the MSB a buck. Think about that. I mean, those are, we've been doing that together for over five years. That's a hell of a relationship in uh, podcast and podcast sponsorship. And uh, you should really check out Safe Castle if you never have. Safe Castle Royal. Uh, your place to find everything in prepping from practical to tactical and everything in between, safecastle.com. With that, uh, let's go ahead and take you on a journey through history to the year that was the episode, the year 1371. Edward the Black Prince in poor health and poor. Edward the Black Prince can barely move. Remember, this is a guy that's ravaged France in, in warfare. He caught dysentery that turned into dropsy, a buildup of water in the legs, also known as edema. Uh, after directing the massacre of the town of Lemoyne from his litter, he is giving up administrative duties in Unquet in present-day France. He is out of Ducats and returning to England. He will linger for another few years and die in 1376 at the age of 45. So the guy that battle after battle could not take down goes down to disease. He didn't even die from the Black Plague. He lived through that, but... Uh, dysentery and edema. 
Um, here's Alex Shrug's take, who puts these together for us at TSP Wiki. In the Middle Ages, you make money by beating people up and taking their stuff. For nobility such as the Black Prince, he must go to war as an excuse to make his money, either by plundering enemy provinces or conquering neighboring lands and expanding his tax base or marrying into a family that controls vast lands that could be exploited. The reputation of the Black Prince in France is bad and will remain so until the modern day. In England, he is viewed as more, in a more favorable light. I have a lot of takes on that. So he's viewed as a favor, by a favorable light in England. Why? Because he, he killed people on England's behalf. See, it's not just the victors that write the history. Each nation writes their own history. I mean, if you think about the, the angle that we've been fed about, let's say, the Vietnam conflict and our men that fought in Vietnam and our men that died in Vietnam, their sacrifice was worthy and meant something, and it did to the men around them, okay? But in the end, we lost that conflict. We lost the Vietnam War. And, and no amount of feel-good, rah-rah flag-waving will change that. We lost that war. We went in there. There was a, a North and South Vietnam. We went in there you know, with the intent of keeping South Vietnam separate from North Vietnam. Um, we left. The country is now united, and it was united under the leadership of the North Vietnamese. We lost the Vietnam War. But you wouldn't know that. And when you say something like that, do you know what people say? That you're you're not patriotic and that you're 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 talking down about the men who fought, like you're putting down the veteran. Well, the veteran isn't the one that wanted to go in the first place. The veteran is the one that started the war. The veteran isn't the one that put the rules on the war that made it impossible for us to win that war. Um, and the veteran had no no control over the the fact that we went to another country that frankly really didn't want us there. So it has nothing to do with the veteran. It just has to do with the angle from history that you look at it. But if you grew up like I did during the 70s and 80s and all the movies that were made about the Vietnam War, we looked like heroes and we looked like winners. Well, there was a lot of heroism, and I'm sure on both sides of that war. But in the end, we weren't winners. And when you say, well, we won every battle but lost the war, you, you still say we lost the war. We need to be very careful on how we analyze anything historical based on who is giving us that information because the side that is writing about itself will always write better of itself than it was and it doesn't matter if that side won or lost. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and get into the main topic of today's show, Comfrey. Um, this is not a permaculture show. Though it will appeal to, appeal to permaculturists. Um, it is not a herbal medicine show, though it will appeal to those who like herbal medicine. And it's not a homesteading show, but it should appeal to those that like homesteading. So if you like any of those, you should like this show. And if you don't like any of those, I don't know what to tell you. Um, other than give it a shot, maybe this will be a good entry point for you because it's such an easy thing to grow. It has so many functions and it's so easy to understand how and why it works. But I want to start out with, well, what exactly is comfrey? I mean, it's a plant, duh, right? But what is it? I mean, wh where does it come from? What is it? What is it? What is it about comfrey that makes it unique? Wh where, wh you know, what does its its uh, its its taxonomy come from? Well, it's in the cyphrum is the species, which is basically all comfreys are cyphrum, and you hear cyphrum officinal, which is the uh, wild 
form of naturally reproducing coffee, and there's other wild forms of other subspecies. But it's in a family. So you have species and family and taxonomy. And the family is borage, the borage family. And that means that things like borage are related to comfrey. And if you look at borage and its leaf structure and how it feels and its little flowers, it's very similar. So there's there's you know this broader family that, that comfrey is part of. It has similar appearing uh, plants that are of other species. And some of those species have been used at times to make crosses uh, with different varieties of comfrey to create hybridization that we'll talk about in a bit. And the interesting thing about that hybridization is, is that it actually creates a sterile plant that does not reproduce from seed, which for people that are concerned about uh, having comfrey spread too much is quite useful and quite valuable. And there's some other advantages to hybridization we'll talk about in a bit. But it's just basically an old world, if you want to call it that plant. And it's been used for thousands of years medicinally. And that's its most traditional long-term uses is, is a medicinal. Uh, actually, also as a pot herb, people just ate it flat out. Um, and it's also been used as a livestock uh, fodder. But it's really just because it grows so prolifically. And in you know traditional use, they were all using the Sifrum officinal because, or it, whatever was local to their area, because that's what they had. There was not a lot of hybridization going on thousands of years ago, and that's how, but the reason I'm even telling you that is to understand that's how long this stuff's been used with nobody falling over and dying of liver cancer from it, and yet we're told today that comfrey is toxic. And the way that it's presented in all of the literature that you read online by the, the traditional medicine world is that it's it's like super dangerous. Like like if you you might as well be eating foxglove digitalis because it'll kill you dead if you if you consume it. And the research on this that, that that leads us to believe this is thin. It's very thin. And I did in the show on herbs a deep analysis of that, so I won't repeat that. But I'll just tell you. The, the research has involved feeding extremely large amounts of comfrey to rats and then examining their livers. And that the liver of, the liver of, a, of an adolescent rat is not like that of a human being. And it's not a good analog. And if you want to look at a good analog of comfrey or a good analog of human beings with the, the functioning of the body, um, you would find it in, in swine that the, the pig is actually very closely uh, similar to us biologically, uh, far more so than a, a rat. And that, that hogs are routinely fed comfrey as part of fodder, and the, the hogs that are slaughtered after consuming comfrey have livers that are just beyond beautiful. And when you butcher animals, and this is something that many people just don't understand, If you butcher animals, and I have butchered my share of animals, when you remove the entrails of a healthy animal, it is very clear that that animal is healthy. When you remove the entrails of an animal that's really, really sick, that's evident too. And when an animal's health is like, eh, you can tell. Now, I'm sure that you could put slides under a microscope and show definitive differences, but a healthy liver, a healthy heart... The, those two organs are very good indicators of overall health. And when you look at one, you know that it's healthy. 
And when you have butchered wild game and you become accustomed to that, and then you take part in butchering an animal that was, you know, feedlot raised and that type of thing, instead of something that's pasture raised and fed supplemental grains as only as necessary and things like that, an animal that doesn't get to eat, like a chicken that doesn't get to eat insects, when you butcher one of them, you know immediately, even if that animal looked healthy, that that animal's health is just not where it belongs. So this is not you know definitive biological research, but what I'm telling you is the animals that I have opened up that have had comfrey as part of their diet, their livers look magnificent. And to me, that matters. I know it's only anecdotal evidence, but to me, that matters a lot. I feel there's only two explanations for why comfrey has been so vilified by the establishment. It is either just nanny state, teacup crap, run amok. We found one thing that might be wrong maybe sometime, somewhere, so, oh my God, call in the troops and protect everybody. Or it's an outright slander campaign because the damn thing is so effective. And it replaces the need for so much. And I also think we're being lied to about something else. I'm going to talk about the healing power of comfrey on wounds and injuries and things like that, especially skin injuries, and a bit, but what the explanation is, is well, the comfrey has allotin in it. Now, allotin is in a lot of other plants. It's just very, it's pretty high in comfrey, but it's in pretty big concentrations in a lot of skin creams and things like that. And they don't have the healing power of comfrey. They just don't. And the healing power is evident to anybody that tries it and observes it. I'll just say that. It's not mystical. It's it's some chemicals in the comfrey. And I think the allotin plays a part in it. But I think there must be other constituents and components to comfrey that add to what the allotin's doing. It can't just be that. Or when we take an extract of this stuff and use it, it should be just as effective. And it's not. And and there's observable facts about comfrey and its effectiveness. Um Lawrence D. Wells is a guy whose books you may want to look up. And the only one that's available in Kindle format, which I prefer for my books anymore, is Comfrey Past, Present, and Future. In that book, Wells gives descriptions of, of people who were treated with Comfrey because doctors were like, there's nothing else we can do. These were elderly patients, infirm elderly patients with ulcers and bed sores and things like that. Uh, these were patients that were going to die. And they had put every antibiotic to work. They had done everything they could to get wounds to heal. And anybody that's worked with the elderly knows they get these types of sores, and they're all but impossible to heal. And using poultices of comfrey was effective and used multiple times and recorded by medical doctors multiple times of causing these things to reverse course and begin to heal. And again, these were wounds that would not heal by any other means. So when I say that the healing power of comfrey is real and that the research done to tell you it's toxic is skewed, I mean it. And again, I could go into a deep uh, explanation if you really want one. I'll put a link to a forum thread where this is really well explained. And you can go back and listen to the last herbal show I did. I'll put a link to that as well. 
and you can hear the the diatribe and all the different things that went on and 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 how ridiculous calling it toxic for internal use really is. I will say this though. The 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 toxic component are alkaloids. The alkaloids do exist and they are toxic and they are in there. Now, the little white button mushrooms that you get at the store, okay? There is a toxin in those that is the exact same toxin. I mean the exact same. Not similar, not close. It is the exact same toxin that exists in a destroying angel mushroom. You eat a plate full of destroying angel mushrooms, it will kill you dead. Okay? They are one of the most dangerous to consume mushrooms in the world. They don't make you high, they make you dead. Alright? And that's why they're called Destroying Angel or Death Angel. The nice thing about Destroying Angel Mushroom is it's so obvious. It looks, it looks like it looks. And you, once you know it, you don't eat it. Okay? Weird enough, squirrels eat them and it doesn't hurt them and no one's sure why. See, this is why we don't compare a rat to a human. You eat a Destroying Angel Mushroom, you die. A squirrel, which is a rat with a fluffy tail, that's very good eating, by the way, eats a Destroying Angel Mushroom, you, he doesn't die. So we shouldn't Draw these analogies where they don't belong. Anyway, those two mushrooms have the same toxin. So there's toxins in a lot of things. It's the quantity that gets you. Now the reality is, when we go through the different types of comfrey here in a second, this, the Cifram officinale, or the wild comfrey, has lower alkaloid content than the hybrids. And the leaves have a lower alkaloid content than the roots. So the more of the root or the more of a hybrid you use, the higher the occurrence of these alkaloids. And they do cause problems in the liver, and they can result in liver complications leading and be carcinogenic in large quantities. You have to eat, even with the hybrids, a lot of comfrey. And the, these alkaloids are much higher in the roots. So if you're if you're going to do what's illegal and use it for internal use, and I can't advise you to because I am not a medical practitioner and it's illegal for me to do so, but if you're going to choose to do it, it might be good that you know that and you might choose to use the leaf of the wild form of comfrey or less of the leaf of the uh, hybrids and not use the root if you're going to use it internally. Just saying, you might want to know that just because it would be smarter. Now, to cover my ass, I'm going to say this. If you were going to be stupid and drink gasoline, it would be better to drink a drop than to drink a gallon. Right? So a drop would be very, very bad in the gasoline world, but it would not be as bad as a gallon. I'm just covering my ass here because I don't want somebody saying that I'm advising people to do this. I will tell you that personally, at times, I do use comfrey internally, and I am not dead, nor is my liver collapsing in front of me. Okay? Plain and simple. And I'm sure a few adult beverages that I might have tonight might actually be more more damaging to my liver than a cup of comfrey tea. I'm, I'm pretty sure of that. Uh, but yet alcohol is not illegal and comfrey is for internal use. Okay? So I just think that the research has been done wrong. It's been done poorly. The best example I can I've ever seen was a study done where it was fed to rats as a portion of their diet, not like their entire freaking diet, but it was dried root ground up and included in their diet at a fairly high ratio. And when I did the math, the human being would still be eating basically 
uh, a bushel basket damn near of comfrey leaves a day to be the equivalent to what these rats were consuming. And I just don't think it's right what the government's done with this. And I'll leave it at that as we move on. Uh, I want to talk about the different types of comfrey and what balking means. Now, I, I've heard a lot of people when they're talking about comfrey that kind of know it in passing, call it blocking. Like it's blocking, like because that would make sense. You're dividing it into blocking one, blocking two, blocking three, blocking four, whatever. It's balking, B-O-C-K-I-N-G. It's it's a, a village in Suffolk, England that's called balking. And this guy Lawrence Wells, Lawrence D. Wells, is the guy that did the definitive research on this stuff through the middle 1900s, okay? So from the 30s up into the 70s, this guy uh, has was working with Comfrey and, and, and has done research beyond anything anybody else ever did before or since on Comfrey. And that's why I really recommend checking out his books if you want to know more because the definitive nature and the conclusive nature of what he's researched, uh, the good and the bad. So for instance, he'll tell you, like, okay, we fed it to pigs. And we fed them like 10% of their diet in Comfrey, and they were freaking rocking. And then we fed them like 65% of their diet in Comfrey, and they freaking died. So don't do that. All right. So <laughs> just so you get an understanding, right? So he's, it's not like it's, it's you know, like this guy is like a, a quack or something. This guy's a, a, a definitive researcher that, that's, you know, pointed to the thresholds and where you go into the danger zones of things and things like that. He was also a huge advocate though of the human consumption of comfrey and developing worlds because comfrey is anywhere from 26 to 35% protein. And there is no other vegetable source of protein that grows as a leaf that's perennial that regrows that could be cut three or four times a season, okay, that can be propagated from roots, from cuttings, over and over and over again, and so easily grown that gets close to that. It is one of the highest sources of natural protein in the vegetable kingdom that there is. You can say whatever you want about bees and beans and peas and stuff like that, but you have to replant those every year. You have to replant them every year. So he was a huge advocate of doing more research on comfrey for human consumption and making it part of what was to be done in the third world. And all of a sudden, comfrey ends up with this huge malicious campaign against it as being dangerous. That could be another reason. Because, you know, I don't know, there's a lot of money in feeding people in the third world, actually, if you, if you look at it. I know you don't think there is because they're all non-profits. Well, uh, when government gets involved, which it is, and multiple agencies are created, and 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 people are selling in the 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 mealy porridge and things like that, there's a lot of money there. I'm just saying. And if you empower those people to to provide for themselves locally without the need of herbicides and pesticides, because we don't need either one of those for comfrey. And you can do all your fertilizing with manure, and you can feed the comfrey to the people and to the livestock providing manure. Well, you start to really break down that chain. So I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I'm not saying there's anything to that. I'm just saying that as weird as the whole thing appears, how malicious the attack has been, and how wrong the attack has been, and how many things are proven far more dangerous than comfrey, even based on the research used are completely considered okay for internal use, and comfrey isn't, it makes you wonder. What was the, the old thing? Things that make you go, hmm. I had a buddy who used to talk about things once in a while, and he'd talk about something that's kind of nasty and go, things that make you go, Bleh. that's just a little aside there. So in, in the comfrey world, 
we have what I call four main types of comfrey. We have True Sifrim Officinal, which is the original wild comfrey, Bocking 4, Bocking 14, and uh right? And that's... <laughs> I'm dead serious when I say, uh, because that, they're like some taxonomist, some botanist somewhere knows what, what it is, but that's the normal reaction from people. Um, the Cifram officinale reproduces from seed, like, like most plants do. And it is best used for fodder and for medicinal use, because it does have lower alkaloids, but it will spread with seed. And because of that, it can become quote-unquote invasive, though I think that's a little bit overstated because it only spreads if you let it flower, and if you really want to maximize the root production of comfrey, you actually want to cut it before it flowers. But, you know, it's going to, one little flower here and one little flower there, and some seed gets away, and some of it's growing in some place you don't know about. And, yeah, it can show up everywhere, but if I'm going to have something show up everywhere, I'm kind of okay with it being comfrey. But it is, if you have a, especially... The suburban gardener that has a little backyard and has a neighbor that's going, well, I don't know where all this crap came from. Why the hell is this growing in my yard? I want my true green cam long. Like, like that. I can understand where you really wouldn't maybe want to grow that, but that's, that's what that is. Then there's a whole bunch of bockings. And if you read Wells' work, you find out there's far more than 14 of them. So what happened to one, two, and three? Well, four and 14 have become the two that people most prefer, and therefore they're used pretty much to the exclusion of others. So Bocking 4 is generally more frequently used as a fodder crop, a crop that's used for goats to feed on, for instance, or for, for sheep to feed on, or for cattle to feed on, uh, either planted in, a, in an area that you, you take the cuttings from and bring them to the animals, or you quickly graze them past and then put them on regular pasture, or put out as a mix in their pasture with other things. Um, it's it's very similar to 14, honestly. 14, though, is the one that permaculturists and backyard organic gardeners prefer. Um, it has a little bit thinner stalks when the stalks come up out of it for the flower heads, so they break down faster, and... Um, it's just a little bit easier to deal with if you're using it for composting and things like that. And it's not really that big a difference, honestly. It is also said that in some cases, a lot of animals that won't graze 14 will graze 4, as though there's some kind of taste or characteristic to it that they just don't appreciate as much in the 14 that they do the 4. Looking at it, you can tell a bit of difference. It's not a huge difference, but 4 is kind of a rounder leaf, a more rounded shape, and 14 is a little more pointed. And it, when you look at them side by side, you're like, oh, okay, 4, 14. I've gotten to the point where I've got both kinds growing all over the place here now, and from 10, 20 feet away, I can look, oh, that's, that's a clump of 4. It's just got a rounder leaf on it. Um, if you're choosing between the two, I'd actually say go ahead and do 4 because... It's it's generally seen as a better fodder crop, and it does put down roots a bit deeper, so it's more drought-resistant and drought-tolerant, so it's a little more resilient. And if you're ever going to graze it, it's less likely to be non-palatable to whatever you're putting on it. But I haven't seen anything turn down one versus the other here, though the only thing that really eats it here are the ducks and the geese. The chickens don't really eat much of it 
when it's live. They'll, eat, they'll peck at it here and there just a little bit. I figure they'll take what they want. If you want your chickens consuming some of it, the best way to do that is to dry out a bunch of leaves, grind them up, and mix them into their feed. And they'll, they'll happily eat it that way as an adjunct. And, and I would say that, you know, we use maybe in a 50-pound bag of feed, and I use a non-GMO, non-soy feed that's based on, you know, cow peas and, and peanut meal and things like that, uh, two big handfuls, just as a little boost. And it in in trials, in Wells' work, it has been shown to darken the color of egg yolks as well and get that darker, richer egg yolk that a lot of uh, natural egg producers are uh, are looking for. But I've also found that as comfrey kind of does its thing, the chickens peck at it here and there, and they probably get enough of, they, of what they want at free choice, and that intrinsic intelligence of the animal says, well, I need a little bit of this right now, even though it's not my favorite thing. You know, it's like a little kid that doesn't really want to eat a spinach, but he'll eat a bite or two because you tell him he's going to be about Popeye, right? So I wouldn't really sweat it, and pretty much I plant what I can get, right, with between the 4 and 14. I don't have much of the, in fact, I have none of the, the wild aficionado, uh, sent from a fishing alcohol free right now, but I'm probably going to put some in because it, it serves its purpose as well. And I, again, I'm not real concerned on my property about it being invasive. In fact, the way with all the rock and places I'm trying to develop, if something will grow there, fine. I don't care what it is. And the geese will take care of it. The geese love it. The geese will take a huge plant and they'll take it to the ground where I can't. I'm like, I know there was a comfrey plant here. And I finally look and I'll find just the ribs of it laid swallowed out and it grows right back. Uh, you can cut your comfrey several times a year, and you won't have any problem more on that in a bit. So that's the, the different kinds, the the four, the 14, the aficionado. Oh, and the, oh, um, there's a lot of times you'll find comfrey. And uh, you know it's a comfrey plant of some sort. And you kind of look at it and go, it's not from aficionado, and it's not a hybrid. It's small-leafed. It's, I don't know. <laughs> And to me, those are just another form of the same beast, and they have uses too. And I would use any of them uh, for just about everything I'm going to talk about today. Just some might be better than others for certain things. The big thing with 4 and 14 is fodder crops and is fertility crops is they have bigger leaves. So bigger leaves, more production from one plant, more fertility, more fodder. That's, that's what I like them more for that rather than not being invasive. Um, when it comes to propagating it, the wild comfries and the comfries can be produced from seed. And they're the only ones that can, and it has a reputation of being very difficult to do. And if that were so, no one worry, would worry about it being invasive. It's not difficult to do. A germination rate is high. The reason I think people believe that it's difficult to propagate from seed is, one, it's so blooming easy to propagate from cuttings that why would you? And two, people get a hold of seed that was taken from a plant that's a hybrid, and it's sterile, so it won't reproduce. So then it becomes, well, it doesn't work. It doesn't germinate. Well, if you get um, you know wild comfrey seed, it will germinate just fine. You'll get 85 90% germination. Um, and you get little bitty plants, and they take a good full year to really come on and establish and put down roots. And you probably wouldn't be taking that plant and pulling it out and taking cuttings off of it until at least its second year. And at that point, you've got something really going on. Uh, you really do. And it's very resilient, wall comfrey. So seeds, the way I would do comfrey if I was going to put it from seed, 
I would start it in small pots, and as soon as that plant had about five leaves on it, I would get it in the ground where I want it to grow. And I wouldn't put it anywhere unless I want it there for a long time, like forever. There are some ways to get rid of it, but it's tough. I'll just tell you that. And sometimes when you think you've gotten rid of it, you know, four months later, the phoenix rises and up the leaves come from that one little piece of root that survived in the ground. And you don't know how because you covered it over with a piece of plywood for a year. Um, it will come back. Now, I don't see this as a problem. I see this as a solution. Because I can plant anything right next to that comfrey plant, and whenever that comfrey plant's taking up too much space, I cut the leaves and throw it to the roots of the plant that's growing next to it, and it feeds it. So I, I don't have a concern, but I feel obligated to tell you that it will be there for like your lifetime, most likely. The number one thing that will eventually choke out and kill your comfrey is grass. If you let grass run unabated where comfrey is, it will eventually choke out comfrey, believe it or not. Especially gra aggressive grasses like Bermuda and St. Augustine. Um, the easiest way is from root cuttings, crowns, etc. Um, and it's that's pretty much you take your piece of root, you, get, you put some good fertility there, some compost, the manure and compost, um, you bury it, and it grows. And you can't do it wrong, but there are ways to do it right. And they are this way. If you buy a, a whole, we'll call it a plant. Now, when we think of plants... We think of leaves and what have you. When, when you're buying comfrey roots and they say it's a two-year-old plant or a three-year-old plant, it's basically they've dug up the comfrey plant and they've trimmed off a bunch of the roots and they've left the main structure of the whole plant. And that's going to grow very, very rapidly into a very large plant very quickly. Um, and it will put down a lot of additional root really fast And those usually sell somewhere between five and ten bucks a piece, depending on how old and how big and what quality you're, you're getting. Then there's what's called a crown or, or what, a crom, some people call it, but it's really a crown. And when you, when you pull a comfrey plant out of the ground, a lot of times you'll get places where it's spread out and it's started to, to, to bud up and, and, and send out a new plant. Okay. And it's, it's going to send out that new, new, new head, so to speak. But it hasn't really developed much yet. Uh, sometimes you'll get a big nodule like that that's not even begun to come up out of the ground yet, but it's kind of got its own little nucleus going on. And you cut that off, that's called a crown because it's, it's got more going on than just a root cutting. So you've got the whole plant or you've got a crown. And then you've got your root cuttings, and that's the below that point All those pencil-sized and up pieces of root that are sticking out, when you go to propagate a full-size plant, you cut all that off, and each one of those root sections, a couple inches or larger, you can plant that. If you're planting a crown or a plant, you put it in the ground as it would grow. The obvious part that would be up goes up and everything else goes down. You plant it a couple inches deep, and it, it'll go from there. Um, again, you really can't do this wrong, but these are the right ways to do it, the, the, the best ways, the best practices. When you're planting a root cutting, you've got something that looks like a piece of a pencil, a broken piece of a pencil, either a little thinner, a little thicker, about that round. That, you, you dig a hole about two inches deep, and you lay it horizontal, not straight up and down, horizontal. The reason being is that That will get the maximum amount of hair roots coming out of it and going laterally into the ground as it creates its own new crown and begins to grow up. And 
a root cutting turns into a big plant pretty fast, but not as fast as either a crown or a whole plant. Now, my preference, and this is, I'm going to give you a list of suppliers. The guy that I've been most happy with is Coe's Comfrey. And when you buy his plants, especially when you're buying like, you know, your, like two-year plants. Now, he sells those for nine bucks a piece. That's a big plant. And there's a lot of root left on that plant. And generally, I can take one of his plants and I can cut four root cuttings off of it. I can usually do that with his one-year plants, but his, his two-year plants are just huge. And I can get four or five nice little pieces of root cutting and still put that whole big giant crown somewhere where I want a big plant and propagate those root cuttings. So if I look at root cuttings, they're about a buck a piece. So in that two-year plant, it might be nine dollars, but I'm gonna get five bucks worth of cuttings off it. So now it's a four to five dollar uh, plant. I can't say every single one of them you can do that, but geez, most of them you can. And again, once you get this stuff established, you'll have more of it than you need for the rest of your life, and it really is that easy. Um, there's also from tiny cuttings, and this is best done for me anyway. You start it out in a container, and then you move it to the ground. And people say, comfrey doesn't do good in containers. Well, if you grow a great big two-year-old plant of comfrey in a container, it doesn't do good at all. Uh, there's no doubt about that, because what happens is all those roots bound up, start twisting around, and it's trying to drive a deep hole, and it can't do it, and it gets upset with itself, and it's angry, and it's growing into itself, and it says, you suck, and it just doesn't do good. It's, it's sad, as Paul Wheaton would say. Um, but for like a first year, it blows up, and it puts a lot of roots on. And those who were at my last workshop, I had some pretty big, I'd say they were about one foot by two foot containers, about a foot deep, which is a little too shallow, really. And I had some comfrey crowns last year that I didn't really know where to put. I didn't have the land developed enough yet to be putting it all out. And it was midsummer and it was hot as hell and, you know, it just wasn't a good time to put it out. So I put each one into one of these containers. And then this year, this spring, I got tons of cuttings off of that. We planted it all over my food forest and I still gave away, God, I think anybody that wanted to left with four or five cuttings. And a few crowns and, and what have you as well. And that all just came from, I think, five of those containers and five crowns. So you can do it in, in, in containers. You don't have to, but you can. If you're using a tiny cutting approach, then using some sort of a small container and getting the plant a little bit established before it goes in the ground makes sense to me. I saw one guy on YouTube, basically his containers where he saved toilet paper rolls, And he cut them about uh, two inches long, so it probably gets, what, uh, two out of one roll. And then filled them with potting soil and then put little tiny cuttings of comfrey in them. And with a couple of weeks, you got leaves up and little hair roots coming on, and you can just take that. You can take that whole piece of cardboard and just shove it in the ground like a little in-the-ground planter, and it'll decompose, and that plant will take off. The reason you might do this is if you wanted to make a lot of it really, really fast, right? Because, I mean, you could, you could order 20 roots – Plant 10 of them somewhere on your property. Take the other 10 of them, cut each, each root that's, you know, cutting that's, I don't know, two, two and a half inches long, they usually are, into a bunch of little quarter inch pieces and, and turn those other 10 into a hundred, maybe plants, at least 50. 
And if you then took one of your crowns and planted it into a big container, next year you could get a bunch more cuttings, another crown, another plant, and a whole bunch more babies. And I mean, you can go nuts with this stuff. It, and it's amazing to me how hard it is to actually find suppliers of, of roots, being that it sells well. And a lot of times these guys are sold out or have limits on how many you can buy. And it sells for a good price. Uh, there's just not enough of it out there right now. And I think it's because... When we get to the supplier section, I'm going to tell you first, look around. See if you can find any. Like, if you have friends that garden, they might have some. They might not know what it is. They might be like, oh, it was here when I got here, and it's cool, so I left it. Um, because you can basically take a shovel on a growing comfrey plant. It's going to sound horrible, but you can. And just, like, cut it in half with the shovel and yank half of it out of the ground. Uh, trim the top off that's left. Uh, throw some nice, good compost and manure around it. And in a couple of weeks, you won't know you ever hurt that plant. And everything you've yanked out of the ground can be broken up, cut up, and planted. So, you know, you check around first. So, um, what, my, my big point is don't, don't hold your nose at, at the cost of the initial plants. Because if you want a lot of it, you only need a few to get started. Um, I would say that... If I wanted to do a lot fast, well, let me tell you, there's two ways I might do a lot fast. One would be get yourself some five-gallon buckets and drill some holes in it for good drainage. Use a good organic uh, potting soil with, with high organic uh, fertility in it. And get yourself three or four one-year plants and plant three or four buckets with that and keep them in a semi-shaded area and take good care of them for a year. At the end of that year, dump out the, you know, when you're ready to plant them in the spring, dump that out and just start going to work with, with a pair of clippers and clipping pieces off. And you could then, if you wanted to, plant out your plants, which will now be, you know, two-year plants, or put them right back in that bucket and do it again. And you can keep doing that over and over and over. And, as, and at that point, you'll want to re, you know, put some new fertility back in that soil. And it will do just fine like that. If I wanted to do a lot fast, or if I wanted to make it part of, like if I was doing a backyard nursery thing, and I wanted to have the ability to sell roots and cuttings to my customers, I would probably build somewhere between a 4x4 to 4x12-foot bed dedicated to comfrey. I would use a good, sandy soil mix, um, something along the lines, if you're looking, if you're talking to your, you know, whoever you buy soil mix from, This is kind of the ratio I'd look at. Like somewhere in the neighborhood of like 50-50 cushion sand to compost. I mean, that would be perfect. 60% compost, 40% cushion sand. Uh, 40% compost, 60% cushion sand, somewhere in there. Uh, a good sandy soil lot with lava sand mixed in it would be all right too. Um, the reason is I want a very... For what I'm doing here, comfrey doesn't need this, okay? But for what I'm going to be doing as a propagator, I want something that's very loose and very friable that when I go to remove that plant, I can get a lot of it out without it breaking. I'm going to go all the way down a foot till I get into native soil before I'm going to probably have to break root. Uh, which, by the way, those are going to come back and grow right up through there, which is nice, and I'm going to be replanting some. And in that bed, I would plant... And I would, I would, if I was going to do this, I would be buying two-year or older plants. I would plant one plant basically per square foot in that bed with a staggered kind of checkerboard pattern. And I would mulch that 
to keep other weeds down. And when it came up and got to be big, I would cut it down to only a couple inches high, and I would cut it four or five times a year, which may seem counterintuitive. But every time you do that and it starts to re-sprout, it's going to dump a bunch of the energy that we're going to support the leaves into the root system, and you're going to get more roots. And then in you know early spring, I would dig up the roots. I would take all of the cuttings that I want for propagating elsewhere or for sale, and I would replant my main plant crowns back into there. And I probably just wouldn't sell, you know, two, three-year-old plants. But what you could also be doing is if you had multiples of these, propagation for propagation. So you have your one-year plants here, your two-year plants here, your three-year plants here. By the time you get a three-year plant, you've got a huge plant. That'll bring a lot of money. So you might then sell that off and be bringing your seconds to and bringing them up that way. Right? So you could have four or five beds doing this. And I think out of, you know, four or five, six small raised beds with that type of the soil mix – You could probably produce more comfrey than you could sell locally. I don't think you even need that much. I think you could do this with one bed and just sell cuttings. Just sell cuttings. Root cuttings and crowns. Root cuttings a buck a piece, crowns two, three bucks a piece. Or just use it for your own propagation. And that would be the, the number one way that I would personally do it, especially in a small scale suburban environment, you know, semi rural environment where you don't have a ton of land. And in that type of soil mix, it will grow beautiful, long, deep, straight roots. And I would do that raised bed with 2x12s. So that gives you 11 and a half inches before you're down in native soil, uh, which is a long way for that root to go before it even touches native soil. And if I wanted to get crazy, I might even raise that bed up a little bit more. Uh, you're going to have to keep it irrigated. I would go ahead and I would put in, in a grid pattern, uh, PVC pipe that would probably paint to protect it, or I would use the great what's called brown pipe. It's gray, UV stabilized. I would drill around each plant. I would drill a couple one-eighth inch holes, and then I would set a timer on that, a little cheap plastic timer. You turn your water on. You set your timer for you know half an hour, and I would drip irrigate it that way. And I would never let anything grow in there but comfrey if I was doing it for this purpose. And I would build that that uh, so semi-grid pattern PVC thing so that it's not buried. It sits on top of the uh, bed. And when I need to work on my comfrey and pull comfrey out, I can just pick the whole thing straight up and move it off. I can even just disconnect it and put it away. And if you keep your beds 4x4 four four to 4x8, four you could just take that thing, half-inch PVC, and put it away during the winter. And any time of the year you don't even need irrigation, just put it away whenever the plants have been cut or what have you. If you want to go through and, and cut with a scythe and do your cutting with a scythe and cut the whole bed, pick it up, lift it up over top of the plants, set it to the side, come through with your scythe, scythe your comfrey off, take it to the side, do whatever you're going to do with the cuttings, and then put your irrigation back on. Just saying, that's what I would do. Taking kind of the square foot gardener approach to uh, comfrey propagation. Now... Um, uses for comfrey. Why are we doing all this? Number one is fodder. Um, cows, chickens, pigs, geese, you name it, they'll eat it. You do need to know that you do not want to be feeding this like it's hay. Um, the, the, the issue with alkaloids and liver toxicity is real. When I say that it's overblown by the government, it's ridiculous what they do, I mean it. 
But if you lock an animal in a cage and you do nothing but bring it comfrey fodder, you will kill it. Now, I, that's not just comfrey. There's a lot of things that if you fed 100% in the diet to an animal, and that animal normally would never eat that much, but it's, it's like I either starve or I eat this, so I guess I'm eating, I'm eating this gruel again today, you'd kill it. But I would try to keep the percentages of comfrey in the diet of an animal below 20%. And I think 10% is plenty to get all the benefits of it. And if you're allowing animals to freely graze, that's going to happen by itself. They're not going to, they're not going to load up on just comfrey. And they'll, they'll go through peaks and valleys. So my geese will go out and they'll just hammer a plant to the ground. And sitting right next to it, 20 feet away, 10 feet away, there's another plant. Same balking, so it's not a preference. They've had their comfrey for a while. They might not touch it for another week, and then also they'll come back and hammer it. They know what they need, and I think it's better to handle most of your grazing and feeding free choice. If you are, you know, a backyard, you know, uh, livestock person, small livestock, rabbits, chickens, whatever, and you're you're pretty much cut and bringing to the animal because you can't paddock shift and can't graze, then I think you, you try to stay in that 10% range little handful in there and everything else that they normally get and bazinga and let them have it. All right. Um, the next though is fertilizer. Let me give you the NPK ratio of fertilizer. That's this nitrogen, uh, potassium, uh, phosphorus and potassium, right? Um, 1.8 nitrogen, 0.5 phosphorus and 5.3 potassium. It's, that's very, very high in potassium. And I, I think when people hear numbers like that, when you're used to looking at chemical fertilizers, you know, 5105, whatever, uh, you, you might think that's kind of low, uh, especially a half, you know, half a percent, uh, of phosphorus. But let me compare that for you. And this, this is dried comfrey leaf. That's what this is that has that ratio. Let me compare that for you to, uh, farmyard manures. So if we, if we look at something like a cow, a dairy cow, 0.25.15.25. For all the, the talk about how great cow manure is for fertilizer, it's a quarter, a fifteenth, or, and a quarter. Um, now, it's misleading as to how valuable cow manure is because there's a lot of organic matter there too, and that organic matter continues to break down and it ups the overall ratios. But when we just start out with cow manure, we're there. Horse manure, 0.7 nitrogen, uh, 0.3.6, sheep 0.7.3.9, chicken 1.1. For all the talk of how hot chicken manure is, it's only 1.1% nitrogen, but that's very high in the state that it's in, and it can burn plants if applied directly, 0.8.5. Rabbit manure, which, again, it's the form of the nitrogen in the chicken manure, because rabbit manure has more nitrogen, but it's considered a cool manure. We can put it straight onto a plant without burning it. 2.4, 1.4, 0.6. Now, I want to read the last number to you, right? That's, that's the, the, um, the potassium number. Uh, the last number of dairy cows, 0.25. Last number of a horse is 0.6. Last number of the sheep ratio, 0.9. Last number of a chicken, 0.5. Last number of a rabbit is 0.6. And, and what is comfrey again? 5.3. 5.3. So, and, and again, 1.8 nitrogen. It's, it's the um, the phosphorus that it's low in. And phosphorus is, a, is an element that's a little bit more complicated in some ways to get into your soil. But even a half a percent of phosphorus is a lot for a plant to have. 
and it's very bioavailable. I mean, the reality is there's probably plenty of phosphorus in the rocks and minerals that are in your soil. Your plants just can't naturally get to it. And if your soil is alkaline, then there's not a lot of breakdown of that phosphorus into bioavailability, and comfrey can get it. So it just right out of the gate is a good fertilizer if you just had dry leaves and sprinkled it around. It's, it's, it's as good as compost in, in reality. Um, but it's also a dynamic accumulator. Now, what's dynamic accumulation? I, like I just explained it sort of. So there's probably lots of phosphorus in your land, but it's bound up into a rock or a mineral or a, a granule of something, and your plant has just got you know its little roots all over it. It just can't get it, it's, especially if your soil doesn't have a lot of fungal and earthworm activity and other uh, you know exate activity going on in it. It just it can't get to it. Comfrey. When others can't, comfrey can. And through the biological activity of the soil, there's always some there, unless we've totally killed it and nothing will grow, um, is able to reach out and through relationship with fungal and other things, touch that rock and a little bit of the phosphorus or other mineral is released. And it takes it up into itself and it brings it up through its roots into its leaves And then when those leaves are either cut or they just die at the end of the year and fall to the ground, those minerals that have been dynamically accumulated right, are now released and become bioavailable to other plants. This is why it's such an amazing plant for improving soil, even if you just grow it and chop and drop it, because it does this accumulation. Well, it, it, it accumulates silica, which is huge. You guys that have problems with squash bugs and vine borers like I do, plant comfrey and put it all around your squash. You increase silica and you decrease the damage done by squash bugs. Um, it, nitrogen, magnesium, calcium, potassium, and iron. So there's a lot of talk about our soils Uh, being depleted in nutrients and they, you know, your food no longer has the minerals and vitamins and nutrients it used to. The soil's not depleted in nutrients. The soil's not really depleted in nutrients because the nutrients, the, the, these, these elements like calcium and iron, they're not really in the soil, so to say. They're in the rock. They're in the rock and they're in the sand and they're, they're, they're not generally floating around. Now there used to be a lot of it floating around in the soil. It was there. But it wasn't floating around the soil just because, well, there was that much and we took it and now it's gone. It was floating around in the soil because the soil was alive with worms and, and, and nematodes, both beneficial and bad, with protozoa and bacteria and fungi. And all of this activity, this soil food web, caused all these reactions with these, this hard matter like rock. And when the rock had little bits of acidic activity just chip away at it, chip away at it, it released its minerals into the soil so the plants could get to it. So what we're doing with a dynamic accumulator is as we're restoring the soil, we're pulling out those elements when other plants can't yet get to it so that we can begin to restore the balance in the soil. And once the soil health improves and the soil life improves, more and more minerals and nutrients will come from other processes. The dynamic accumulator is the jump starter to this thing. All right. So how we can use it other than just planting it and letting it do those things for us. One of the most powerful things you can do with comfrey is make liquid fertilizer. And you get the extraction of that, that wonderful NPK ratio again, that one eight half five three. Uh, so this is a very high 
potassium fertilizer. Now, before I tell you how to make the liquid fertilizer, I'm going to tell you the best time to use it, especially on your vegetables. The best time to use it on your vegetables is after they've started to flower. When their main body growth has happened and they're starting to flower and put on you know, their fruits. Here's why. Nitrogen is what fuels early growth in a plant. It's what makes it green and vibrant and lush and it makes it grow, right? It's, it's potassium that supports it when it's in fruiting mode. And too much potassium, when the plant hasn't grown yet, can actually inhibit its growth rate. So you want to, so instead of these, 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 these fertilizers that, that have these predefined ratios, it's more important that the plant have what it needs when it needs it. And when you're giving a plant a liquid fertilizer, understand this, it's like a booster shot. It's immediately available. It has an immediate effect. So when I have a plant that's kind of lingering, it's yellowish, it's just not growing, it isn't put on its size yet, it's starting to flower way too small, I give that sucker nitrogen. And the best nitrogen fertilizer I found to give it as a liquid and put it on a therapy and get it going is miracle Grow Organic Liquid Fertilizer. It's 12 parts nitrogen, zero and zero of everything else. And when you have that plant that's just, it's not green like it's supposed to be, it's yellow green, and you give it a cap full of that to a two-gallon watering can, you soak the ground around it, that thing turns around in a week, and if it's not turning around in a couple of days, I give it a second treatment, and it just goes, right? Because it needs nitrogen. That's it, See, plants need all three, and they need actually tons of other elements to be healthy, but they have certain things they need more at certain times. When your chickens are babies, okay, and they're in that early growth spurt, if you think about how fast a chicken grows to an adult size – they put the growth rate of a human being to shame. I mean, it's it's insane. And all that rapid growth needs protein because it's muscle growth, and it needs protein to fuel the muscle growth that supports the skeletal structure that's coming up, right? So you feed them a higher protein feed then, and as they go into layer mode, you change the feed to a lower protein ratio. Right? This makes perfect sense with a bird. You're like, oh, okay. Well, plants work the same way. Now, I'm not saying that we should be trying to extract things from our soil and make sure it's not there. But I'm saying when you're providing supplementation, because that's what bird food should be for your chickens. It shouldn't be their diet. It should be a supplement to their diet because they can only get so much from the land. It shouldn't be all on that. So you're supplementing them with something that's got a higher protein ratio during the high growth rate. Supplement your plants with nitrogen early and sub supplement them with potassium as they're into productivity. All right, so this fertilizer I'm going to tell you to make, use it after the plant's put on its primary growth. Not all, just its primary growth. So the way you make this is easy. You home brewers, you probably have a bucket that you could sacrifice to do with this already, a bottling bucket. Five-gallon bucket with a little, um, like a little drain tap at the bottom. And you can, there's all kinds of places you can get little drain taps and build this. You can make a great big one out of a garbage can and, and, and get a, a thing at Home Depot to put a hose bib on it or whatever. But whatever you make it out of, set it on something high enough or make it small enough that you can lift it when it's full. You can open the bottom up and drain the liquid out of the bottom. You do not want to have to take the lid off and dip it out because it is going to stink. It will not work for catfish bait, but I imagine if you could figure out a way to make it work for catfish bait, it would catch lots of catfish because it stinks as bad as any catfish bait or chum you've ever smelled in your life. It stinks. It's black, inky stink. 
But oh my God, is it wonderful. Take your five-gallon bucket or other container and fill it about 80% of the way with loosely packed comfrey leaves and stems. Not packed in there tightly, just like loosely packed. So there's lots of room for water. Fill it almost to the top with water. Put a lid on it because it is going to stink. After about four weeks, and really it's at premium six weeks on, the liquid that comes out of the bottom when you open it will be an inky, black, stinky goo. Dilute that 15 to 1 with water. So you can see that you make, you know, by the time you figure out the leaves are breaking down, releasing some of their liquid, the water, in a 5-gallon bucket you're making about 4 gallons. But at, at 15 to 1 ratio with water, you just made 60 gallons of fertilizer. That's why I said you could do it with a big, you know, drum or, or a water barrel or something like that. But think about it before you do because it's a lot to get rid of. And there's a couple schools of thought on this. When it's empty or half empty, take the lid off, hold your nose, fill it back up with water and keep it going. And you can keep it going all season long like that. And then the other school of thought is, well, you've kind of extracted most of the, the goodies from it. So when it's empty, dump it somewhere and then keep going. So one of the other things that comfrey is really great at is a compost activator. So a great thing that you can do is kind of time using up your comfrey liquid fertilizer with starting a big compost pile uh, where you're going to do turn every couple days type of thing, you know, your, your typical hot composting. And when you go to build your compost pile, take your residue from your bucket, and when you've got about half the pile built, just dump it all over it and then cover it up. And that will keep the stink down, and it will help really supercharge, activate, get that compost going. You can also start compost as an activator with comfrey just by cutting four or five or six big leaves and including them in your pile. They really are a great compost activator. You can also make the liquid comfrey feed pretty much just by packing the bucket tightly with comfrey and then putting the lid on it and not using any water. It will come out really thick and gloppy, but it'll work. Um, I prefer to do it with water. And I've had some people say, well, you just put bricks on top of the comfrey and keep it under the water. And that's a good idea, to put a brick or a rock on top of it. But I want a lid because, again, it's it's pretty smelly. They call it liquid manure for a reason. But, I mean, think about what I've just told you. With a few handfuls of leaves, you can make 40 gallons of fertilizer and then still have leftover that can be mulched somewhere because it will stop stinking once it dries out. Or pull your mulch back, put it on the ground, and cover it up, or just dump it somewhere where its fertility will go to good use. And, and you can make it again and again and again. You just need to plan this out in about four to six-week cycles to get really good results from your comfrey. So by the time you're putting your seedlings in the ground, you should be taking a cu some cu you know cuttings of your comfrey leaves and making a batch for that year. And it's, it's super easy and super effective. Straight mulching, though, uh, I don't have time to do that this year. I'm not going to do a fall garden, whatever. Cut leaves, pull back the mulch around your plants, put the leaves on the ground, throw the mulch back on top of it, and let it, it'll break down and ooze out its black, inky goodness just that way right there. Okay? Um, or just chop and drop. Just chop it and throw it around the bases of your trees, your fruit bushes and things, and it will do all of the fertility wonderful things that it does, and it will just grow back. So it's free fertilizer. And it's one of the best fertilizers you can get. Um, and I, there's a, you know, a technique that I was just, just talking about there. I kind of call it leaf boosting. And we can do that with, let's say I put a tomato in the ground. Um, I can take two or three comfrey leaves 
And once I've kind of, you know, packed the dirt around that tomato's roots, lay them around it like a, like a sheet mulch, and then put my mulch over top of it. And that will release into that tomato's root system. If you're doing potatoes, you take your seed potato and you wrap it, if it's a big leaf, uh, maybe a half a leaf, or if it's a small leaf, one leaf, wrap it around your seed potato and plant your seed potato in the ground. You'll have better potato productivity than you've ever seen in your life from doing that. Uh, it actually is pretty effective at helping uh, sweet potato slips as well. Uh, take half a leaf when you do a sweet potato slip, dig your hole to stick your slip in, put your slip in, drop the leaf in, and bury it. Just wonderful, wonderful boost. And potatoes and sweet potatoes, anything that's tuber-based, everything I said about the potassium slowing it down, right? The potassium speeds it up from the beginning. It's different. It does really good with potassium, so you don't have to worry about stunting the early growth. And you're not going to get that much from one one leaf to a half of a leaf anyway where you're going to stunt the growth. It's going to be there, and it's going to be like a slow-release capsule. If it takes six weeks for it to ooze out in that bucket, it's taking more like 12 weeks for it to ooze out into the surrounding ground. Well, what else is going to happen? Well, comfrey is a high-nutritious thing. So if you have a, something with a lot of nutrition sitting in the soil, what's going to happen to it? Things are going to eat it like earthworms. And the earthworms are going to crawl through the soil like, ooh, this is good. And they're going to start feeding on it. And they're going to put their little worm poo all around there while they're eating it. And they're going to leave egg cases there. And it's going to make more earthworms. And you're going to have earthworm activity right around the living roots of your plants and tubers. It just doesn't get any better than that. So it's like bait to bring in the fertility producers and the soil turners that do all the work for you while you sleep. Um, so those are the main uses as fertilizer in the garden. On medicinal uses, it works wonderful on wounds and ulcers. I've, you know, I've seen the results of it. And I heal relatively quickly. So, you know, I'm a little skeptical, but I, you know, I, I scratch and cut and dig and hack myself and burn myself on stuff all the time just because of the type of life that I lead. And I can tell you flat out, if I put, If I take comfrey leaf, fold it over a couple times into a small thing, put it over a small wound, throw a Band-Aid over that versus just put a Band-Aid on or leave it be, it always takes longer to heal it, it, versus the comfrey leaf. Comfrey and plantain both work good for that. In fact, a small piece of plantain leaf and then a comfrey over top of it and a bandage is, is probably the best thing in the world you can do to help a wound heal. You add a little, little slab of honey on there, man, you really got something going on. Um, on bites and stings, I've seen it work really, really well. I, I demonstrated it here when we dumped out all those containers I was talking about. They were sitting in my greenhouse, and that got them up and big and happy and growing before everything out in the yard did. And I had one sitting on the ground, and the fire ants thought, oh, it's cool in here. They water it every day. It's loose and friable soil. There's holes in the bottom we can crawl in. This is a great house. So about 50 billion fire ants made a house out of one of my comfrey things. And I'm like, you, they got to go. So you have this big matted mess of tiny hair roots and big comfrey roots. And we're out there with a hose, and I got one bite out of all those fire ants. One got me on the wrist. And you can see it start to swell up right away. Big white you know, fire ant bite. And I just grabbed one of the comfrey leaves, mashed it up, and started rubbing it on there. And we had a circle of people around us. And by the time the people on the far end of the circle came over to look at it, it was gone. It was comp There was no trace of the bite left. Um, tr try that aloe vera. I'm just saying. So bites and sting, it's effective. I'd say it's not effective as plantain. 
Plantain, I found to be the most effective thing to put on a bite or a sting, but you could do worse than mashing up the two together and putting on a sting. I will tell you, some people say that comfrey can be um, irritating to the skin. I've never seen anybody have that reaction, but with anything you're putting on your skin for the first time, you may want to test it. And if you're thinking about using it for bites and, and scrapes and skins, you may want to use a little bit, put it on an area, put a Band-Aid over it for 20 minutes, take it off and look at, see if you have any reaction in that one small area. I'm talking a very tiny area, just so you know before you need it whether or not it's safe for you to use. Uh, but I haven't met anybody that says, I put comfrey on my, my body and I broke out a rash. I guess anybody can be allergic to anything. You know, Some people, I think, are allergic to like oxygen. We call them politicians. It's the only explanation I have for their behaviors. Um, broken bones and sprains, generally the way this is done is wherever you have the break, um, you, you know, this day and age you're going to have a cast. So I don't know how much use it can be in that situation because getting to it, I'm not sure how you would. Where I've heard most people talk about using it with breaks is the breaks that, that doctors don't do, like you break your little toe or something, they're like, dude, it's they're just it's just the way it is. Uh, and, and wrapping it up with comfrey and wrapping a Band-Aid around it, um, comfrey actually means bone set or to knit together, bone knit because it was so traditionally used for this. With sprains uh, and hairline fractures, that type of thing, where they don't put you in a cast, that's where it's really at its best. And what's done then is you wrap the area or cover the area that's affected in, in comfrey leaves and wrap it in an ace bandage. And this is something that no, like science craps on everything herbal, but nobody disputes this works because it works so well it's impossible to dispute. So it works really well for that. With sprains, the same type of thing. Sprains and bruises, cover the area with leaf, wrap it with an ace bandage. Um, internally, this is considered illegal again to, to market or suggest the internal use of comfrey, but it's been used as a long time, and one of the things it's used for is to tonify the liver, which it's supposed to damage. It's generally used in a tea. Um, again, if you look at the amount of comfrey fed to animals where the testing was done to say it's dangerous and what one would use to make comfrey tea to drink, you, you find it to be preposterous that the two are even compared. You're talking uh, a quarter to a half of a leaf crumbled up and steeped in hot water. Uh, and then the leaf removed and then drink the water. It has a cucumber-type kind of flavor to it. And it's usually used with other herbs. Um, and, and I personally believe it's healthy for you. But again, I can't tell you to consume it because that's illegal. Um, all I can say is for thousands of years it's been used that way and people didn't drop over dead from it. Um, the other thing you may really want to consider, especially for wounds and for bruises and for sprains, is making an oil or a salve. The one problem with comfrey in the way I've described, put it on there, throw a Band-Aid over it, is it moves around. Sometimes it's places where it's hard to do that. You know, I usually cut myself, little minor scrapes and cuts are usually on my fingers. And if they're not out at the tip of the finger, like down by a joint or something, it, it's a little bit harder to hold that leaf there. And comfrey leaf is not, like I said, I've never seen it cause irritation to the skin, but it's a little prickly. So it doesn't exactly feel good, especially a big old clump of the leaves like wrapped around your arm if you sprain your arm or something. So if you make a salve or an oil, you can rub the area and then wrap it. And um, 
I might, I should also tell you that it's recommended you not use it for more than 10 consecutive days that way. Because of the same, the alkaloids will go through your body and go to your liver and make you dead. That's the story anyway. Um, I wouldn't use it for years. If you're wrapping the same place in comfrey salve for a year, you got something really wrong. You need to go see a doctor. Um, but I think 10 to 14 days is a max recommended maximum topical use consecutively of comfrey. You'll need to check with your healthcare practitioner uh, or do your own research to learn more on that. But oil and salve is, is really pretty easy to do. I would generally use about a half a pound of comf. This is this is not dry leaf. This is green leaf. You'd use less if you were using dried leaf. And if you're buying it, you're going to end up with dried leaf. Um, but fresh leaf, about a half a pound of, of of wet green leaf, chopped up coarsely, and then put into a pot and covered with about a cup to a cup and a half of olive oil, and heat it really, really gently. You don't want to boil it. Just warm it. And another way you could do it is like a small crock pot, put the same stuff in there and put it on the lowest setting and leave it for like an hour. You can do that. You can use a sun method. You take it and put it in a, like a mason jar and cover it with your olive oil, put the lid on it and set it in the sun for a day. Or you can just leave it in a cool, dark place for a couple of weeks. One way or another, you're extracting the comfrey goodness into the oil. Strain it out, you have comfrey oil. And that's it. That's the whole thing. You want to make it more like a salve so it'll stick more? Um, heat, you have about a, to about a cup of oil, uh, heat up your oil and melt into it about three tablespoons ish of, of beeswax. If you have a little more, maybe four tablespoons, a little less oil, maybe a little less wax, but melt wax into it and, and let it harden at room temperature. And if it's, here's the great thing. So the first time you make it, see, so I, I don't like recipes where they're too specific with the ingredients and amounts and what have you. It, how much beeswax and how much oil? I don't know. You know, it depends on your wax, depends on your oil, depends on the room temperature. Let's say you let it harden and it's just, well, that's not quite savvy enough. It's a little too oily yet. Warm it back up, melt a little more beeswax into it. And then you've got something that's more like a rub that you can rub on, less like an oil, more like a salve rub. And then you can rub that into wherever area you want to use comfrey. And I'm telling you, for sprains, sore muscles, Hairline fractures, it is the bomb. It's probably the best uh, medicinal use that there is for it. Now, let's say you wanted a comfrey patch. You wanted a place where you just grow comfrey, um, whether it's a, a little bitty area like the beds I talked about or something as big as a bedroom or uh, an acre of it. Whatever you wanted to grow that you want to grow as a fodder crop or uh, what you know, whatever you're going to grow it for, what are the rules to make that patch highly productive and last, you know, a lifetime. And the the basic rules are keep it clean, cut, and fed. That's that's your number one rules for it. Clean means weed-free. People think because comfrey is such a survivor that weeds are not a problem. Weeds can eventually choke out comfrey like weeds of any sort can choke out any other plant. Uh, in a polycultured system, it probably ain't going to happen, but when you're going into a patch which is, you know, a monoculture. And and I think that in the in the world of agriculture different word the same word can mean different things in different situations. So monoculture has a very negative connotation to it. But when we say monoculture in traditional agriculture, we're talking, you know, a hundred acres to a thousand acres of corn, that kind of a monoculture. 
Then what we have are what, what I call like patchy monocultures or patchy polycultures, a, 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 you know, a tenth of an acre comfrey patch that's surrounded by a massive amount of biodiversity to me. It's a monocrop in that spot, but it's not really a monocrop. Because it hasn't displaced diversity. It's part of diversity in a patch. And in nature, we have patchy clumps that are dominated by one thing. Um, I probably wouldn't ever grow an acre of comfrey. And if I did, I'd probably grow 10 one-tenth acre patches. Um, I would probably never even do this. But I'm going to tell you how to do it if you want to. Because we need people doing it just for propagation to make the roots more available, honestly. Um, but... Number one, clean, so weeded. Number two, cut. If you want maximum yield in leaf per year and you want maximum development of roots per year, you do not want it to set flowers. Setting flowers takes a lot of energy for comfrey. So every time it's high enough that it's just about to start setting up stalks and flower, you cut it. And it'll grow right back. Think of it like grass. When you cut grass, you're not like, oh no, I cut down so much of it, it'll never cut. You're like, well, that's what you gotta do. You gotta cut the grass, and two weeks later, you gotta cut the grass again. Well, it ain't quite two weeks, but three to four cuttings a year. So it must be cut, and it should be fed. It's another thing. It is a survival plant. It is like a, a, Crawford's like a survivalist hippie. It's like the Cody Lundeen of, of herbs. Right, it, it it just kind of sits there and doesn't really care. It's like, ah, oh, dandelion, you're growing next to me. Cool, man. That's 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 fine. It's not allopathic in any way. It doesn't really choke anything else out for the all the talk of the invasiveness. Other than it spreads by seed, it's not really invasive. It doesn't send runners out. It, it survives in shade. As long as it's not too hot and dry, it survives in sun. It survives in part shade and part sun. It survives when an animal eats it, and it doesn't really care. It's like, cool, dude, whatever. Well, the problem with that is we think that that's, since that's the case, and since it's so good at getting all these minerals and all, that it doesn't require organic matter. It needs things like composted manure and mulches, and it needs good nutrient to run off of. For it to be able to go down and mine silica off of a rock, or iron off a rock, it needs nitrogen. And that's one of the biggest things that it needs because it's it's all about big, leafy, green growth. And I already told you what does that? Nitrogen. This is the beauty of comfrey, though. If you give it a nitrogen source and you cut it and you feed it to an animal, it improves the nitrogen content of the animal's manure, which you're going to then use as fertilizer to feed other crops and back to the comfrey. If you just cut it and then mulch it somewhere else, it takes that nitrogen and gives it to another plant. If you put it in a bucket and decompose it into a liquid manure, it takes that nitrogen and gives It's not gone, right? That's what I'm trying to get at, like giving it nitrogen. It's not like it's a, a heavy feeder in reality because it gives back. It returns the surplus. It doesn't redistribute the surplus. Those of you that want to rewrite the third ethic of permaculture, it returns it to the system from which it grows. So it has to be fed. The next thing is... Of all the things that can get in and choke out your comfrey patch, grass. Now, if you have clumps of comfrey growing in polycultured grass and clover and plantain and chicory and daikon coming up as a reseeding annual and different grasses, it ain't going to happen. It's going to keep coming. And if it's being grazed or cut regularly, then 
it's going to be fine. But if grass gets into a comfrey patch and it's not taken into consideration and it's not controlled, eventually your comfrey yield will suffer. Okay? Uh, so it's, this is, again, I'm talking really for the person that's growing a comfrey fodder or comfrey propagation patch here, not for people polyculturing it, which is the way I prefer. You can graze it instead of cutting it. But if you graze it, think about what I said. You don't want animals taking the bulk of their diet from comfrey. So you would push your grazers through fast and then take them to where they would normally graze. And then you would pulse them through again a couple days later and pulse them through pulse them through three or four times over five or six days and they'll graze and trample it down and then it'll start to regrow. So you can if you just wanted to graze it you, and you wanted to keep a patch instead of cutting it you could graze through it and that actually would have a lot of value because while your grazers are in there they're going to put grazer turd everywhere and they're going to fertilize all at once and they'll be dropping grazer turd of the comfrey they ate the day before or the next day when they're going through again but you have to move your grazers through pretty quick over a period of time if you want to do this effectively And it's a great way to do things because when they're in there, if there's any other little weeds and stuff, they're going to pluck that out. Probably the, the, the thing that will graze your comfrey the heaviest is going to be goats and sheep. They love it. I don't know that I would ever let cattle go through my comfrey patch if I had a dedicated comfrey patch. It's a big, heavy animal, and I'm trying to keep more of this monocrop type thing. They're going to mash things really, really down. It's going to grow back, but it's going to compact the soil at all. Your smaller grazers, geese, I would push through it. I'd let geese sit in there for an hour or two until they're bored. And then when they're bored, they're all going to be sitting there looking at you like, let me out. And, you know, I would, I would tell you, plan on to, to, to take down, unless you have a lot of geese, to take down even a small patch of comfrey, Uh, with your geese, you can plan on weeks. The thing about geese is you, if you give them free choice to your comfrey patch, they'll go in there whenever you want reduce your overall cutting needs, and they will never wipe it out, at least in my experience. And if you have enough geese, if you have a thousand geese and a, 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 you know, a, a 40th of an acre patch, they might wipe that out eventually, I guess, but they'll get bored because there's not any there to eat anymore, and it'll grow back. Um, but in general, if you had a pretty big clump and a nice flock of geese, They're not going to wipe it out. But I prefer a polyculture, but that is the best way to do it. Um, I prefer the more distributed polyculture manner. As far as spacing, uh, you space your plants in um, for a patch like this. Now, we're not talking about intensively managed propagation bed like I talked about with about a one-foot spacing, about a three-foot spacing on three-foot spacing. So three-foot apart and three-foot between rows. In uh, Lawrence D. Wells' book, he said you can go two feet with no problem. I probably wouldn't be closer than that. About two foot spacing in, in, a, in a situation. And, you know, you could plant a pretty big patch, you know, with a, with a big handful of roots. And if you're willing to let it take a little longer to develop, most of the root cuttings you buy, guys, you can cut them in half and easily get two out of each one. And again, buying whole plants and cutting off, you know, trimming down a little bit more than the, the seller did, you can get more root cuttings and things like that. So that would be how I would uh, establish and maintain a, a, a patch, a fodder patch, if I was going to take that approach. Where you can get them, again, first check around, you may find that it's growing on your property already, for all you know. If it's just there, 
if it's just on your property growing and you didn't plant it and it wasn't like managed by a gardener before you bought the place, it's probably Cifram officinal. It's probably wild confer that reproduces from seed. And again, if you start looking at different ones, you'll be able to tell. It's a smaller, uh, more pointed leaf. If it's a really rounded leaf, you're looking at big leaf, you're looking at blocking four. If it's a pretty big pointed leaf, it's probably 14. I say that because the only two known varieties of hybrid I found, and both are referred to, by the way, as Russian comfrey, are 4 and 14. But check around first, see if anybody's got it growing or what have you, because most people that know what comfrey is, if you say, I need some, we'll just yank some roots off one of their plants and give them to you. Um, but if you can't and you want to buy some, Uh, the best place I've found has been Coast Comfrey. Uh, that guy is awesome. A lot of times he's sold out. A lot of times he takes a while to ship. He always throws in some extra stuff for me. He's even, I've, I've never really even talked to the guy. He's left me a, a thing where he said you can call me for an interview. And I don't know. I just don't call people for interviews. I, if you can't fill out my guest form, I'm sorry. Um, and I, I, you know, but he just seems like a great guy. And I, I'm happy to keep sending him visits. He's got my my logo on his site now. I guess whoever runs his site for him put it there. Um, he has amazing quality. Uh, what he ships you is going to do beautiful for you. Uh, another place, and if I say the name wrong, I apologize in advance. It's Nantahala Farms. N-A-N-T-A-H-A-L-A. Nantahala Farm and Garden. She's in North Carolina, this gal. She sells uh, and, and co- Uh, he sells 100% a Bocking 4, which if you made me pick one, that's what I would pick. I don't, I'll use whatever I can get, but I would probably pick Bocking 4 as my go-to because it's more drought resistant, more aggressive root systems, and generally a little bit better for fodder. Um, Nantahala Farm, she sells 4, 14, uh, true comfrey, Cifram Officinal, and she sells, uh, She has a, a variety that showed up there that they sell as well. She even calls it invasive, just to give you a clue. But she sells that too. And, and so those are all available from her. And she sells some other things as well. And then the other source that I would give you is Horizon Herbs. They also sell comfrey root. I've bought a lot of stuff from Horizon Herbs. A lot. Um, the last... Herb show I did, they even reached out to me because so many of you guys were buying things from them. They were like, wow, you know, so their owner reached out to me and I still haven't heard back now. It's weird how people do things like this. So they're like, wow, this guy, you know, what's going on? So he said he would send me a big box of comfrey that I could give out to the audience. And I'm like, well, I can't be mailing a route to every member of the audience that wins the prize or want. I mean, I can't have the postage of 40 or 50 people just to give out comfrey route. And I proposed to him that we do a discount, and he said he would get back to me, and he never did. So um, if you guys buy from Horizon Herbs, mention again that you heard about them here, and maybe that will spur them to you know come and let's work out an MSB discount. Uh, I think sometimes people don't really understand that, and they don't take the time to understand it, how they're protected, it's not going to be available to everybody, and how how effective it really is to be in the MSB. I think a lot of people don't realize that either. So if you buy from uh, Horizon, just tell them in the notes, hey, heard about you again on the Survival Podcast. But they generally have stuff in stock too. I don't remember if they have both blockings or just one, but again, I wouldn't really worry about it. And I know they also sell the seeds. Now, I can't say I've ever bought comfrey root from Horizon Herbs because I'd be lying to you and I don't lie to you. 
I can tell you that I've bought lots of seed from them, and it's been extremely good shipping, extremely good customer service, great pot pricing, and I've had great germination rates. So I'm recommending them for Comfrey because everything that I've ever seen from them has been great. And I know a lot of you bought Comfrey from them because they told me you did. And because when you guys buy something from somebody and you're not happy with it, I hear about it and I didn't. So I didn't hear from a single person in that wave that went to Horizon Herbs for roots that said, these guys suck, I got moldy roots, I got dead roots, I got soft roots. So I didn't hear anything. Right? I didn't hear good or bad, but I heard nothing except from them that, holy crap, we sold a lot of Comfrey. So... I'm guessing that everybody was happier. I promise you I would have heard about it. So I don't think you can go wrong. I've bought from Coe's, and I've bought from Natala, Nantahala, I think is how you say that. I've bought from both of them, and they were just the bomb. And everything I've ever bought from Horizon was good. So buy what you want from who you want. I can tell you right now at Coe's, let me take a look. I wanted to buy some more. I shouldn't tell you guys this. I should get out there and buy my own first. Right now... He's selling two-year plants. It looks like you have to buy 50 of them. I'm not really sure. Or maybe he's just selling, oh, okay, I think there's no quantities based on that. $9 each on two-year plants and $14 on three- to four-year plants. I've never seen one of his three- to four-year plants. I bet it's a beast. I bet it really is a beast. Uh, but just to give you an idea, right now he's doing root cuttings, 10 for 11 bucks. 50 for 42 bucks. That would be a lot of root cuttings. His crown cuttings, he's doing 10 for $22. One-year plants. And one-year plants are, I'm telling you guys, his one-year plants, I think he's got two-year plants. He's called one-year plants. They're big plants. 44 bucks for 10. Uh, so my math says that's $4.40 a plant. Uh, that's that's pretty daggone good. Uh, Nantahala... She's doing, I think, five bucks a plant, and her plants are really nice. Uh, Bocking for five dollars each for large root cutting uh, plants. So uh, I recommend both of them. But sorry, Natahala, Co is the man. He really is. So uh, if I had to rank my producers, I'd go Co, Natahala, Horizon, only because I've never actually ordered from Horizon Herbs. Anyway, guys, hope you enjoyed it today's show. Um, I hope you're considering planting some of this now if you, if you grow anything. And even if you're not going to grow it, consider at least learning about it, getting a supply of the leaf, and using it for topical applications, for wound healing, um, for burns, for sprains and bruises. It is just, I don't know of anything that works as good for those things as it does. Uh, especially the bruises and the sprains and the, and the fractures. I don't know anything at all that medicine has anywhere at all ever that works as good as it does. For wound healing, it's valuable, but I think it's more effective combined with plantain, and the two combined together in either a salve or with honey are just phenomenal in what they'll do for wound healing. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, we fall.
Revolution is you. 